You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. And yes, it's a pitter padding of rain, rain, rain. Uh, according to the CFMEU, apparently if it rains four hours in a row, then the workers are allowed to go home. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like the rain's going to set in for a couple of days. So that's an interesting prospect for people who have been in lockdown for quite a considerable amount of time. <laughs> it reminds me of being uh, on the top of a mountain where we used to live in the bush, you know, where it used to rain for something like five days, but not pitter pat but heavy rain for five days in a row. <laughs> a cabin fever took on a new meaning. Anyway, you're on Solidarity Breakfast uh, with Annie and we're uh, going to chat about what I've been doing this week, which is uh, listening into the COP26 People's Summit, which was running parallel to the uh, mainstream COP26 event. A fascinating amount of... Uh, uh, independent media going on at the same time reporting on COP and actually on the uh, climate emergency that we are in. So the uh, mainstream aren't getting it all their own way. Uh, it's quite clear that this is a fight that's too big for uh, purely uh, corporate uh, and financial classes' interests. And so uh, part of the uh, value of listening in to this conference was, uh, I found, was the amazing amount of voices from across the world and their stories uh, from their own towns and villages. Uh, There was a series of... um, events uh, where people were giving uh, testimony, uh, health testimony from across the world, uh, which was absolutely fascinating. And there was a, next week I'll play the piece from the West Palpuan who uh, was speaking about what was happening for West Palpuans uh, because of the drive uh, by extractivist industries that have undermined their entire uh, culture. But uh, they're in the midst of a fight back, uh, as so many Indigenous people are. The key to a uh, sound future is quite clearly with the knowledge of Indigenous people. But the problem is that uh, there is a uh, very strong uh, influence of uh, the um, financial and corporate classes because we are in a capitalist world at the moment. Um the uh, 
In Australia, we generally concentrate on what is happening here and a conference like the uh, COP26 People's Summit really makes you notice that what is happening here is happening everywhere because of the fundamental unethical neo-colonial mindset of the financial and corporate classes. And if you look behind the efforts for positive change at COP26, there are some really nasty actions from financial and corporate interests and governments that show they see climate change as a new opportunity to consolidate their power rather than an existential threat. So instead of reparations to the countries that uh, have been uh, the... um, have been plundered effectively by uh, for hundreds of years by the West. Uh, they're trying to cripple countries with debts. So they, they don't give them reparation, but they want to give them loans. And so these countries that they've already plundered are actually being uh, squeezed once again. Uh, so it, when they're talking about uh, climate uh, funds to give to countries that are uh, in... Uh, being beset by uh, the outcomes of climate change, uh, don't be fooled. They're loans. They're not. Um, they're not uh, reparation funds, as a general rule. Uh, they're also talking about things like privatisation of forests, so excluding indigenous people from their lands, saying they are causing environmental damage, and then handing them to corporate interests in places like India. Uh, so uh, there's uh, criminalisation of climate activists, Indigenous First Nations people being murdered as they fight ecological damage and land grabs. This is happening in South America, Africa, Philippines, Indonesia, and this is just naming a few. And of course, this is a fight which is too big to lose, but it is important to get a picture of the opposition. And one of the sessions put on by Rainforest Action Group, and now you might remember, I remember Rainforest Action Group as the intrepid people in the 1980s who were in their canoes uh, paddling out to stop the arrival of uh, uh, coal carriers, etc., etc., uh, on the seas. Uh, mighty people. And this is a, an international organisation Rainforest Action Group, and they put on a really interesting session called, um, and it really brings it home to uh, to us in Australia because it was uh, uh, Australian companies and the extractivist response to climate change because one of Australia's exports apparently is big-time greed machines in the form of mining companies. So let's, uh, you know, this was part of my education because, uh, you know, you focus on Australia, but actually uh, Australia is uh, really punching above its weight in uh, in a, a, a nasty way <laughs> and not just on the sporting field. So here we go. This is uh, Liz Downs from the Rainforest Action Group who's giving us a summary. So commencing with some background. The clean energy transition has been marketed as the dominant technological mitigation approach to address climate change. In the lead up to the COP26, many wealthy nations have released policy platforms that incentivize a shift from fossil fuel intensive energy systems to material intensive systems. This material transition is predicted to create enormous demand for so-called critical minerals. 
culminating in over 3 billion tonnes of minerals predicted to be needed over coming decades. The potential for negative consequences on human rights and ecological systems from such a massive expansion of mining activities has yet to be adequately factored into the new emerging green economic policies. Substituting carbon intensive energy with cleaner technologies does not necessarily free our economies of their dependence on finite resources. Neither is it really empirically determined yet as to whether transitioning to clean energy is feasible without systemic change to address the large levels of emissions by wealthy nations, heavy polluting industries, and the luxury carbon emitters. Governments are currently not questioning endless growth, excessive consumption, ecologically damaging resource practices, and global inequalities. Instead, they are creating subsidies for techno fixes and green growth approaches. Whilst that starts to address the issue of burning immense amounts of fossil fuels, green growth hides the systemic root causes of the climate crisis whilst minimising the alternatives emerging from resistance struggles. We are examining this phenomenon as through the lens of extractivism, particularly as it relates to mining. Over history, mining has been associated with conflicts and violent resource frontiers. By resource frontiers, we mean places where the resources are found and where external forces such as companies enter to extract those resources, often without the consent from people already living in or reliant on those places for livelihoods or cultural heritage. This often involves violence that is invisible to the majority of those who end up using the commodities. Mining has been the most deadly sector for environmental deadlift defenders according to global witness reports. Many of the most destructive companies are set to capture the bulk of so-called opportunities from greening the economy, which is starting to exacerbating, exis exacerbate existing impacts and create new sacrifice zones with devastating impacts on local communities and ecosystems as several scholars have started to write about. We are finding from the literary review and from emerging case study accounts from the front lines that the global expansion of extractive activities for the green energy transition is creating new resource frontiers, risking human rights abuses, conflict and violence in similar ways to past neo-colonial expansionism, thus having the potential to systematically replicate deeply unequal historical injustices between the global north and the global south. Within this context, Australia is pegged by many industry experts and being propelled by their ally, the United States, to play a key role in the mining of key transition minerals. Australia is one of the biggest players in the global mining industry, holding 40% of the market total share. Some of the largest mining companies come from Australia, including Rio Tinto and BHP. Extractive settler colonial narratives have held sway here 
since the expropriation of First Nations lands by the British Empire in 1788, thus shaping politics and national identity in Australia. For example, the White Australia policy was in large part a strategy to capture land over mineral resources from non-Europeans. Mining concerns that continue today include failures to respect Indigenous rights, the continued pollution of waterways, land clearing and legacy issues of abandoned mining sites. Australia has a political and economic environment that is supportive of mining. There's a revolving door between resource-based government officials and the Australian Minerals Council. Recently, the IMF identified Australia as one of the four nations that could enjoy an extra 1% growth in domestic, uh, gross domestic product building on critical mineral exports if the world achieved net zero emissions by 2050. After speaking to the Quad recently on securing access to critical minerals deemed essential for a clean energy future, Scott Morrison declared Australia's role was very important due to our immense ability to be really good at digging stuff up. So Australia is the world's largest producer and exporter of lithium. Lithium is a metal required in greatest quantities for electric vehicle batteries and is in rapid increasing demand as more countries commit to electrification of transport. Rio Tinto's head of economics recently said, EV sales are on track to hit up to 55% of the world's total light vehicle sales. Rio argues that 80% of the supply will need to come from new mining projects. Australia's lithium exploration and project expansion is both domestic and global. Domestically, projects are concentrated in the Pilbara region in Western Australia. Overseas, Australian companies are expanding in the Lithium Triangle of Bolivia, Argentina and Chile in the salt flats at great risk to hydrological and ecological cycles, as well as Indigenous cultural practices. In Quebec, in Canada, Sayona Mining is developing a hard rock lithium project, which is impacting on ancestral lands of First Nations people. Rio Tinto is also involved in the contested Jadar Mine project, where there is much resistance in Serbia. Australian companies are also seeking to explore for lithium in conflict regions such as the Democratic Republic of Congo. Moving to rare earths, another important mineral for wind turbines and electric vehicles. Rare earth minerals are predicted to increase in demand by 1,000% to meet clean energy transition requirements by 2050. The extraction process of rare earths is extremely environmentally damaging, involving wastewater and tailing ponds that risk leaking acids, heavy metals and radioactive elements. Rare earth mining has long been dominated by Chinese-owned companies who control 80% of the world supply. However, Australia is increasingly being called upon to secure access to this critical mineral to its allies, particularly the US. Rare earths is also used in, in military equipments. Rare earth mining has also resulted in incredible amount of polluted communities and destroyed landscapes in China. And we'll hear today from concerns from Malaysia. 
Currently, Australia accounts for more than half of the new rare earth element projects in the global pipeline, despite the country only containing about 2.8% of the world's reserves. Australia is negotiating trade agreements with China, the US and other world powers in order to retain its share of the global market. Uh, The hubs for rare earths in in Australia are located in Western Australia and new explorations are underway in South Australia, Victoria as well. Linus is our biggest company in the rare earth sector. It mines in Western Australia and operates a processing plant in Malaysia. Australian companies are also investing in rare earth metals in Canada, the US, Tanzania, Malawi and Sierra Leone. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR, community radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. And we're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we're doing a little perusal of an an event that was held at COP26 uh, People's Summit. Uh, It's about Australian miners and uh, stuff that uh, uh, leads you to think about following the money when it comes to uh, the corporate and uh, financial classes' response to climate change. Uh, It uh, gives a very interesting pattern, a picture. And uh, we've just been getting an outline of Australian interests by um, mining interests by Liz Down from the Rainforest Action Group, who were the uh, auspices of this particular event, which was called Australian Companies and the Extractivist Response to Climate Change. We're going to go on to, and part of the strength of these events were the um, the voice, bringing the voices of the people who are actually affected because uh, there's a general, uh, um, you know, throwing around of words and uh, we've got to, uh, go, you know, get clean and green and all the rest of it. But obviously the people who are in the process of extracting these minerals are exactly the same suits that were doing it before with uh, coal. And uh, they haven't cleaned up their act. And so we're, uh, let's hear from Councillor Belinda. Belinda, well, I'll put, say this wrong because I'm so bad at saying people's names. Wabijijig, uh, who's from the Long Point First Nations Council. And this is uh, was mentioned in the... Uh, Roundup. Uh, this is Soyoya Mining, which is uh, uh, an Australian subsidiary company. So the mining company that I'll be addressing uh, my presentation about today is the Sayona Quebec. So Sayona Quebec is a Canadian subsidiary company of the Australian company Sayona Mining. Sayona projects to build and operate at least three lithium mining facilities on the unceded Anishinaabe Aki territory in the Abitibi-Timiskaming region. They are currently developing the Otsi project in Lamut, the Tanzim project um, close to Winaway on LPFN unceded territory. And most recently, Sayona also purchased the North American lithium mine in Lacorn. So the, the Tansom project is an open pit mine targeting the area just north of Lac located on Long Point First Nations unceded territory. 
and particularly close to Winaway, lying on its southeast shore. The company holds 350 mining claims covering more than 20,250 hectares along the north shore of Laximard. So the project is currently at the stage of exploration. The first exploration uh, drills were conducted in February 2019. But Sayona now intends to start a new drilling phase following an optimistic technical report dated from March 2021. Um, I'd like to also point out that in this report, it states that as an area, as this area um, has a long history of exploration and mining, the firm, um, aka Sayona, does not anticipate any barriers to access the project for work plan going forward. So a little bit of background as to what that means. Um, there have been claims around Leximard since the early 50s. And since the 50s, Long Point First Nation has been working really hard to um, you know, contest each one of those claims. So here we are in 2021, still have claims um, along our beautiful lake and we're still working hard to protect it. I wanted to also talk about the Tanzan project and the community response, because I thought it was really important to highlight um, the community's um, take on the, on the mining project itself. So in April, 2021, Long Point First Nation was informed that Sayona was imminent, imminently undertaking new exploration drills on its unceded territory. So the council immediately sent a letter to the CEO of Sayona to express a lack of consent regarding any activity on Long Point First Nation territory. The same position was expressed to the provincial authorities. At the same period, a member of Long Point First Nation launched an online petition against Sayona's mining activities that has as of today, collected more than 22,000 signatures, making it one of the most signed petitions on change.org. So along with the petition, while well, we began capturing a lot of uh, attention and support from many people around, not just in Canada, but around the world. And this led uh, Sayona to touch, uh, to contact uh, the council again. So a presentation was held by Sayona with Long Point First Nation in the following weeks. But uh, the presentation was unsatisfying for the community, considering the scarcity of information regarding the potential impacts of the project. So Yona then suspended all of their drilling operations on the Tanzan site and told the medias that they were committed to not do any work until they obtained the consent of the uh, community. So um, don't get too excited yet, because that's just the beginning of the story. Um, but now, since the end of the summer, the company is expressing its desire to start drilling again for fall 2021. So in the meantime, while Long Point First Nation is repeatedly demanding proper and distinct consultation carried, carried out by Crown authorities, the Quebec government affirms that its duty to consult is not yet engaged at this early, this early in the process. In addition, Sayona's CEO recently publicly affirmed that conversations were ongoing for Long Point First Nation towards the conclusion of a, an agreement, which is 
um, inaccurate. We haven't had any uh, discussions with the CEO or the company itself. And um, by having the CEO publicly state so, it just, uh, it's not only inaccurate, but it also confuses our members. So issues raised by the Tamsin project. So Yona's Tamsin project raises several issues at the environmental level. Well, not only at the environmental level, but also more concerning is Long Point's First Nations Aboriginal rights to fish are jeopardized greatly by mining activities. The work itself, uh, the exploration work itself can have direct impacts on their surrounding wetlands and bodies of water according to the company's own admission. However, these drillings are only a milestone in the path marked out towards an operation of open pit mine in the heart of a living environment of great vulnerability and great importance to Long Point First Nation. Uh, so the Soyonai claims cover in particular the Ottawa River from one bank to another, while its major watercourse constituting one of the most important tribut tributaries of St. Lawrence River. The claims also cover the littoral zone of the north shore of Lac Simard. These environments have a high ecological value, comprise Compromise many of our hunt, uh, members as camps, and um, the camps along Lac Sumard are places where members practice traditional activities and ancestral rites with their families, with their uh, fellow community members. And I just wanted to end my presentation by saying that Nibi, the water, uh, is very um, important to an Anishinaabe Kwe like myself. My traditional belief is that women are responsible for caring for the water. And um, thank you for this opportunity to speak on, on behalf of Long Point and the, uh, you know, that not to express our concerns and our issues that we have with the Tamsin pro project, because uh, myself, along with other women in the community, will continue to advocate for Laximar because keeping our water pure means keeping our nation safe for future generations. Miigwech. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Isn't that fascinating, The uh, that testimony about uh, uh, the uh CEO of the company said categorically that they have and are consulting with the First Nations people in that particular project uh, in Quebec. And uh, uh, the uh, Belinda, the speaker from Long Point Council, First Nations Council, saying that they categorically have not been speaking to them. And uh, it, it's fascinating, isn't it, uh, that uh, words are cheap. Uh, when money is to be made, uh, you, uh, they can lie with a straight face. That basically, that's what's being said. And uh, the uh, next piece from that particular session was from Malaysia, and it's Lee Tan. She is talking about lioness of rare earth. Now, listen with particular interest because this same company is is uh, intending to open a plant in exactly the same type of processing plant in Kalgoorlie. I bet you they're saying there's lots of jobs in it. Claire had mentioned earlier, you know, about rare earth and what it is. Basically, it's used in um, modern electronic um, gadgets 
whether it's for, for renewable energy, uh, everything that every all the digital equipment you're using, laptop, um, iPhone, anything that require digital or electronic um, technology require some rare earth. Um, they are known as the vitamins or the spice for the electronic um, industry. Companies do not need huge amount of rare earth in their production, but um, they are essential to make modern electronic gadget powerful. And um, because of these, um, there is a huge demand for rare earth, particularly when um, because you know climate change solutions involve the use of um, high tech um, technology like renewable energy, um, hybrid or electric cars, um, and so and low energy bulbs and so and so forth. So the the um, demand for rare earth is expected to rise many fold, and because of these, then you have many companies, um, both Australian. American and Canada and elsewhere, or looking at setting up rare earth processing plant. Now, in specifically, I'd like to share with you the my experience dealing with um, Linus rare earth. So they mine the rare earth ore from their mine. Their their mine in uh, Mount Weld in a remote part of Western Australia, and then it's truck on road to the port of Fremantle, which then got loaded onto container and traveling for about 4,000 kilometers from the port of Fremantle to the port of Kuantan. And Kuantan is my hometown. Um, and in 2011, when we first found out about this project from the New York Times uh, magazine, uh, basically, locals were not consulted at all. They were not even made aware of this project until it appeared in an article or series of articles in the New York Times magazine. And everyone was very shocked that this world's largest rare earth plant outside of China would be built and they know nothing about it. Um, they knew about rare earth and its hazards because Previously, in another state, um, the Asian rare earth, which was um, partly owned by Japan's Mitsubishi, has left behind um, radioactive waste and also create, uh, caused very serious public health um, problems there with cases of leukemia in children, um, children born with disability, and so on and so forth. Um, and that plant closed. Um, in 1984, and the radioactive waste was entombed in a, in, in a forest not far from the town. So because of that experience, Malaysians are not keen to have another one. And for them to find out that this is going to be like 50 times bigger than the one in uh, Bukit Merah or in, in the other state, um, they were shocked. And of course, it didn't take long before people started to um, rise up and um, to campaign against um, this project. And this is what it is today. Um, about 
year. The plant started to operate in 2012. Unfortunately, um, despite protests and despite, you know, many attempts to try and stop it, the Malaysian government um, under the then uh, Najib Razak government is one that is known and notorious for its international scale financial uh, corruption. Um, and so, you know, a government like that are not likely to be responsive to people's um, protests, even though 1.2 million people have signed against it, uh, over a thousand submissions was um, um, had a lodge with the government against the project, but the government um, issued a, a temporarily operating license um, in early 2012. Uh, although at that time, the promise was to remove the radioactive waste, which is this reddish waste at the back here, um, yeah, from Malaysia, but that has since changed. And so today you've got this massive amount of waste dumped in the open, um, and Malaysia being a tropical rainforest country, um, you know, rain a lot, and the tropical deluge basically washed many of these, um, much of this waste into the waterways and the natural environment around it. Um, and um, the way Linus is managing this waste is really a double standard. In Australia, in Western Australia, Linus is proposing to build a, a similar plant. Um, and the, just recently, the Western Australian uh, Environmental Protection Authority has required Linus to transport both of these waste um, back to the mine pit to be managed according to radioactive um, waste management plan. But in Malaysia, you know, this is what you get. Um, now, the place where the plant is built is actually once a pristine tropical peat land, uh, peat mangrove. Um, it's very close to the South China Sea. Um, it is, you know, it's kind of um, quite a populated um, area with uh, traditional Malay fishing villages dotted all along the coast. And the plant is within like two to five kilometers from the area's most populated center. Um, and the wastewater from the plant is basically discharged directly into the Balok River, uh, which is a the river that feeds into the peat mangrove. Um, and the peat mangrove is actually a source of um, traditional fishing uh, for the people, where people, you know, get their shellfish. Um, and as you know, mangrove is important spawning and uh, um, breeding grounds for many um, fish and marine uh, species. But none of that's been taken into consideration when Linus built his plant. And at the, at the, uh, um, the estuary, you see children playing quite happily in this water. And yet, you know, they've been contaminated um, but the government has done nothing about it. Um, yeah, so Balok mangrove in by Malaysian um, biological diver diversity stand, standard is actually a very important mangrove area 
due to the species diversity of flora, uh, although not a lot of surveys carry out on this mangrove, uh, locals had used it for a long, long time, um, as I say, you know, for fishing and a whole range of other recreational and also uh, cottage industry. Um, but none of that's been taken into consideration um, when the plant was set, uh, was built in the, in the upper uh, reach of this mangrove. Um, and only a preliminary EIA or environmental impact assessment was done. And much of the issue have not been covered properly. And also the health impact is not dealt with at all in this case, despite the presence of very long living radioactive um, materials like thorium, uranium, uh, even rare earth them, themselves are by no means harmless. Um, study on the health impact of rare earth is um, still very recent, but increasingly they're finding problems in China where children exposed to certain type of rare earth are found to have developmental issues, kidney problems, and so on and so forth. So rare earth itself um, is not harmless and it needs to be studied more in terms of its health impact and also environmental impact. And um, despite making a mess, um, Linus continue to claim that its operation is totally zero harm. Um, and that is what makes people in Kuantan so angry because they are seeing the waste piling up. Um, and yet this company uh, continue to live in denial and is facilitated by the um, government's own regulators. The regulators ha have no, firstly, no technical capacity to manage a plant of this size. Um, they do not understand radio radiation hazard as much. Um, and also there's no political will for them to actually do, do the right thing to operate according to their public um, mandate to protect the health of the environment and the citizens. So, you know, what we get is the regulator singing praises of Linus just because it's an Australian company um, and because Linus is acts and behave like a real bully. Um, so, you know, given the situation, it is no wonder that Malaysia um, has population, um, particularly the residents of Kuantan and surrounding area has taken it upon themselves to get organized. And um, they have protested since 2011. And unfortunately, you know, they are seeing the waste piling up every day. They have a lot of support from amongst themselves. Um, and increasingly, we are looking at USA, where Linus has managed to get funding from Pentagon uh, to build another rare earth um, pl uh, plant in Texas. The reason why Linus is in Malaysia is because of the hazardous processing uh, and also because of China domination over this particular mineral. Um, and it is easy to bully a developing country to accept very low standard of safety and so on and so forth. And I'd just like to conclude that um, 
yeah, although we know and acknowledge that rare earth elements are critical for low emission green technology and for energy transition to tackle climate change, the supply chain must be clean, just and fair. Um, and solution to address climate change must not replicate the negative social and environmental impact of fossil fuel supply chain. And thank you very much. That's all I've got to say. Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fridor Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, before we uh, finish with uh, some of the elements that I collected over the week listening to COP26 People Summit, um, this last piece, um, there were plenty of uh, uh, compelling uh, things that I listened to, but this particular piece uh, is extremely disturbing, I'll have to say. And it was um, from a... Uh, a um, uh, it's uh, Kuhan Palmanda uh, who is talking about uh, on a session that was called U.S. Militarism, Space Tech, and the Climate Crisis: The Role of Demilitarization in Climate Justice. Now, I'm not sure if her figures about the uh, loss of uh, whales uh, is correct because I didn't even know that there were that many whales left in the sea. But uh, listen up. <laughs> you are all set, then we'll pass it on to Kohan Peckmander. Thank you, and thank you to the COP26 People Summit team for giving the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space the opportunity to share some of our research. Now, as we all sadly know by now, the U.S. military is the single largest consumer of fossil fuels in the world and the single largest emitter of carbon emissions in the world. Its carbon emissions exceed those of entire nations like Denmark and Portugal. So we have the Biden administration now saying that they will mandate slashing carbon emissions. But my question is, the Pentagon, in contrast, what they it's sort of a greenwashing because the Pentagon is now saying that they're going to transition to biofuels and electric vehicles and biofuels in their ships, trucks, and aircraft. So what is missing from this climate calculus is that it's not going to stop the Pentagon from decimating populations of whales and dolphins or killing coral reefs and dredging coastal ecosystems. Our planet's oxygen supply is inextricably linked to the health of marine ecosystems. When coral reefs, coastal ecosystems, and rainforests are killed, it sets off a cascade of systems failures. Coral, plankton, algae, trees, and the soil biome that would otherwise be capturing carbon and producing oxygen are destroyed. So as far as the Pentagon is concerned with its mission, the ecocide will go on. So, so what if it's now running on electric vehicles and biofuels? As long as the military's mission is to dominate sea, earth, sky, and space, biofuels and electric vehicles will not stop the Pentagon from crushing the planet's inherent ability, its inherent ability to regenerate itself in the face of climate catastrophe. Now, to make matters worse, 
the Pentagon is undergoing this massive paradigm shift in the way war is waged. And it will require a series of so-called smart grids to enclose the planet in 5G and sonar. This new way of waging war will mean that earthbound mission control centers are moving into space. Brick and mortar facilities are moving to the cloud. The military base manned with thousands of troops and armed with tanks and machine guns, you know, like what we saw in Afghanistan, is now considered passe, which may explain why the U.S. withdrew from that old school war so hastily and without finesse, to say the least. The military base is being replaced by what has been called a high-speed kill web. It uses information as the primary weapon of war. It will enable empire to rain terror down on any spot of the earth. A swarm of drones, hypersonic missiles, submarine torpedoes, bombers, and all with the ease of calling an Uber. This is why demonizing China is so essential because only a foe as formidable and distant as China would justify the hyper-costly infrastructure overhaul required. War with China, and by extension with its ally Russia, requires the U.S. to pour far more, far more resources into military fantasies than that which would be required than your usual bombing of a small third world country. These high-tech profits will make the money made by Halliburton during the 20 years in Afghanistan look like peanuts. In order to build this infrastructure for this new way of war, reefs are being dredged and forests are being raised throughout Asia and the Pacific. An ambitious system of missile deployment facilities, satellite launch pads, radar tracking stations, aircraft carrier ports, live fire training areas, and other facilities for satellite-controlled war are being erected to embody the next century of industrial-scale institutional violence. The new infrastructure will include a grid of thousands of satellites launched into the heavens. It will also be comprised of a grid throughout the Indo-Pacific made up of mini bases, such as airstrips and rocket launch pads on as many islands as possible. It's also on the surface of the ocean. It's also a grid of 5G devices. Underwater, it is a grid of sonar devices. And here's a drone loaded with sonar buoys that will be dropped into the ocean. Sonar devices like these will transmit whale-killing sonar signals to 5G sensors on the ocean surface. The 5G sensors will then relay the signal to land and satellite receivers. Just to give you an idea of how lethal sonar is to whales, when low-frequency active sonar is activated in Hawaii, it has made the sperm whales all the way in Australia stop eating 
for two days. This is how fatally disruptive sonar is to whales and dolphins. It is equally detrimental for their mating, birthing, hunting, voyaging, everything they do. Saturating the ocean with sonar will kill the ocean. Nonetheless, this marine holocaust has been cynically dubbed the smart ocean. And here's an unmanned helicopter loaded with sonar buoys that will also be dropped into the ocean. The idea is to overlay the entire earth with several layers of grids that will transform the planet into a real life 3D chessboard. It is part of a master plan called the Joint All Domain Command and Control or JADC2. At the heart of the JADC2 is a data storage cloud called JEDI, now in development by Amazon and Microsoft, which happens to be one of the sponsors of this year's COP26. Other cloud companies such as Google, Oracle, and IBM have a chance to also win a slice of this deal worth tens of billions of dollars. The inaugural exercises to help develop this new gridded warfare were completed last summer in Hawaii. The new technology linked Navy and Marine Corps, sea, air, land, space, and cyber weapons spanning 17 time zones. Troops practiced blowing lots of things up in Hawaii's marine habitats by clicking on their laptops at Pearl Harbor. In one exercise, Marines on Oahu struck a ship and sank it with missiles launched from a robot truck off the coast of the neighbor island of Kauai. So the oceans sequester an astonishing amount of carbon, 2 billion metric tons per year. And much of the sequestration is due to the presence of whales. Whales are absolutely essential to the ecological harmony of our oceans. And as such, they are the primary species for mitigating and delaying climate catastrophe. Uh, there's a marine biologist named Asha DeVos, and she provides us much uh, information and research on how whales do this. So as whales dive to the depths to feed and come up to the surface to breathe, they actually release enormous fecal plumes this whale pump, as scientists call it, brings essential nutrients from the depths to the surface waters where they stimulate the growth of phytoplankton that form the basis of all marine life and food chains. Because of phytoplankton photosynthesis, the oceans generate more oxygen than all the rainforests of the world combined. And this is especially true now, now that forests have begun emitting more carbon than they are capturing. In fact, 10 UNESCO World Heritage Site forests have begun releasing more carbon than they are absorbing. This alarming development places ever more importance on our oceans to function truly as the lungs of our planet. Once whales die, their carcasses transport carbon to the deep oceans. Every year it is estimated that whale carcasses transport 190,000 tons of carbon to the bottom of the sea. That's the same amount of carbon as that that is emitted by 80,000 cars per year. 
One of the most ecocidal developments of modern warfare is the delusionary need for perpetual year-round military practice in our oceans. We essentially have nonstop war now taking place in our oceans, and we have for a decade, even with no war officially being, being waged. But war is being waged. That is a war on all the living spirits that populate the undersea community and enable our oceans to support life on Earth. The whales, dolphins, turtles, crabs, sea horses, jellyfish, algae, seaweed, eels, plankton, manta rays, and coral. Naval exercises are the cause of tens of thousands of whale and dolphin deaths per year. Pentagon documents estimate that the number of injuries and deaths caused by war practice around the Mariana Islands alone, just around the Mariana Islands, will add up to around 150,000 individuals for the 12 years between 2015 and 2027. They estimate that the number of injuries and deaths of whales and dolphins that took place in the Gulf of Alaska was over 182,000 over a five-year period. Because there are hundreds of naval exercises throughout the, the Indo-Pacific every year, we can easily extrapolate that the number of fatally injured whales and dolphins to be around 100,000 per year. And that's not even counting the devastating impacts that will take place once the smart ocean is installed and operating. Basically, what we have here is the global economy is being organized around militarism. The US seems to think it can go about doing this while it simultaneously addresses the climate crisis, but that's not possible. You can't have it both ways. A weaponized Pacific is a dead Pacific and a dead Pacific is a dead planet. The only way forward toward a livable future is through authentic climate cooperation between China and the US. Because the people of the world want life. The people of the world don't want the oceans and the heavens militarized and weaponized. The people of the world want peace. Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when big supremo scuttled them more less than a.k.a. scummo went electioneering, able to boast yet another major success, the true blue way. Number one in the world in the worst climate change if there is such a thing policy. It takes a lot of work, the true blue Aussie way, to win the race to run last in the world, he boasted. The true blue Aussie can do capitalism way. And true blue Aussie can do capitalism has contributed to us winning this award, an invaluable contribution. Unfortunately, with that, the electioneering took a backward step, or more correctly, put the wheels into reverse by destroying our true blue Aussie weekends, offering all this money to the private sector to install electric car recharging plants all over the country. And although the Socialist Party is scoffing that this has pinched the very policy Scuttledam attacked them for, there is a major difference the Socialists are ignoring. 
Scuttle them as offering nothing to encourage electric car take-up, make them more affordable and available, for instance, and nothing to limit the pollution belching from the other 97 or whatever percent of trucks and cars as they race or more likely slowly traffic jam their way past the recharges. On a positive getting its tactics and principles together, the Socialist Party came up with a real brainwave to counter government attempts to wedge it, as they say, over including carbon capture and storage, the burying your head in the sand solution, as part of a lower emissions fund to hand even more money to the private sector. A brilliant solution under the headline, Socialist Party could sidestep carbon capture wedge by, well, obviously standing up for its principles and telling the government to stick burying your head in the sand where it belongs. Well, uh, no, no, not quite. See, the too-clever-by-half government reckons it's got the socialist wedge between their opposition to carbon sequestration, as burying your head in the sand is called, and being seen to oppose other initiatives. But the socialists are too smart to fall for that. Instead of opposing carbon capture and storage, they will support carbon capture and storage. <laughs> Told you it was brilliant. Yet another courageous socialist principle tactic. Uh, that way, the government can't attack our policy. Spokesperson Chris Bow and the Capitol looked very smug. Uh, that is the policy you don't have anyway. Exactly, it's safer that way. And Chris, you don't think the government might be open to attack on its policy, which is also your non-policy, which won us the worst in the world award? Better safe than sorry. This way, we can't be attacked for not supporting this remarkable national achievement. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Anthony Albinguzi, did say, direct quote, I am sick of the government's hypocrisy on climate change. Just thought I'd throw that one in without comment. No hypocrisy, though, with our filthy riches for the filthy rich men, 20 for rich and richer. For the record, Gina Nohart is the filthiest rich of all the true blue Aussie can-do capitalists currently campaigning for more corporate welfare for the resource and pastoral industries, which by sheer coincidence happen to be the source of her filthy rich. But number one male, great can-do capitalist Twitty, who is touring the world in his new role as the world's number one greedy, saving the planet through green hydrogen, with no thought for the billions he expects to profit from green hydrogen whenever he can get it going. And given Twitty is so into preaching his credentials to the world, just thought we might mention that last year his company, Fortescue Profits, blew the pollution from 700 million litres of diesel fuel, correct figure, 700 million litres of diesel fuel, into the atmosphere he reckons he wants to save. Almost a 10% increase on the previous year, and as thanks on behalf of the environment, received $300 million courtesy, the correct figure again, of the taxpayer in fuel tax credit. Hope those corporate handouts are coming from the Clean Energy Fund. That would make greener than green Twitty feel even better holding out his hand. Although he's clearly thinking of others and not himself as he opposes attempts by environmentalists to slash fuel tax credits altogether. Obviously environmentalists who are not as green as Twitty is green. And of course we know that Twitty for Rich and Richer Family made its original fortune from huge pastoral interests where doubtless they would have employed the original owners of those vast, vast tracts of land 
and provided them with a fair day's tobacco or maybe beads or mirrors or, or smallpox. That he has also been a champion of Indigenous interests, telling us how much he does to make Indigenous lives that little bit better. That must explain why Fortescue for Profits is opposing changes to Aboriginal heritage laws that would give traditional owners a limited right to oppose projects planned for their land, like Twitty's proposed West Pilbara Fines Iron Ore Project affecting the PKKP people, the very same traditional owners who saw their Duke and Gorge sacred sites blasted into extinction by Rio Tinto the planet. We do support the Western Trublowazi government retaining responsibility for the protection of Aboriginal cultural heritage for the scoop of profits submitted. Mm, that captures Twitty's genuine concern for Indigenous people, as that would mean the PKKP people could carry on as much as they like over his West Pilbara Fines project, but have absolutely no rights to do anything about it. As I said, there's no hypocrisy with good old Twitty, like his belief that resource companies like his have the right to explore and extract on other people's land, like on those selfish PKKP people's land, except when it's on his family's pastoral estates, as he took another mining company to the High Court to prevent it exploring on his land and won. A man so devoted to consistency and green, green, green would have applauded Indonesia in other people's business for its consistency, as Indonesia in, home to a third of the world's rainforests, signed a deforestation agreement in Glasgow, a, committee with, a commitment which lasted exactly two days. The agreement is at odds with our development plans and must be fine-tuned, Environment Minister Siti Nabaya Barker said, forcing Indonesia in to reach zero deforestation in 2030 is clearly inappropriate and unfair. The massive development of this era must not stop in the name of carbon emissions or in the name of deforestation. Oh, well, she's made that pretty clear. Well, perhaps Twitty could build a green hydrogen plant where the forest used to be and balance the equation. Or even better, a great opportunity for the true blue Aussie way can-do capitalism as Indonesia in chainsaws its forests, our can-do lot could plant a tree in Indonesia in to offset the coal and other fossils we're refusing to reduce. Win-win. And then when they get round to it, Indonesia in could chop down that tree and then we could plant another. It's a great initiative. Although thinking about that, when it comes to doing something about climate change, if there is such a thing, and not beating the world as the worst in addressing the issue, and thinking about Scummo's deeply thought-through assertion that climate change, if there is, can be solved by true can-do capitalism, does the phrase can't-do capitalism spring to mind, listener? It certainly can do and keeps doing in creating the problem. Bit of bad luck for the government's latest addition to the High Court bench, Simon Stewart of the Right, who specialised in tax law before his appointment to the Federal Court bench three years ago, as his High Court colleagues are thrown out on appeal three of his Federal Court decisions over tax matters, including one involving a labour hire ripper offer described as a <clears throat> labour hire magnate who kept setting up Phoenix companies to avoid worker entitlements and the tax department, in which his honour found for the Phoenix Ripper offer against the tax department seeking a mere $163 million in unpaid taxes. However, 
he will prove an invaluable addition to the bench. Addition to the bench, as well, we recall last year we commented on then Minister for Keeping Us Secure and Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, quite properly most upset when the High Court ruled he couldn't deport Indigenous True Blue Aussies, one born in PNG, the other New Zealand, but living in True Blue Aussies since they were babies. As if the first peoples of this country have a legal right to live here under British law. Well, the question is set to return to the High Court, and one legal journal suggested those outraged by the earlier decision nominated Simon because he would not agree with such nonsense. So let's hope he does the right thing by Constable Duffer and others fighting to preserve us from these indigenous vexatious litigants. One federal court is on a weekend praise upheld that most precious of rights, the right of a worker not to join a union. Interesting how the law supports you if you don't join a union and fails to support you if you do. Anyway, he ordered a company to pay 67 grand to a bloke called John, poor John, who did nothing but defend his right as the company threatened to cut his wages if he did not join the evil CFMEU. Totally reprehensible, his honour exploded. Among the worst examples of coercion. Dear me. Although maybe the cut was back to the wages he would have received, but for the union's campaigns over the years. But then the right not to join also makes illegal a union's non-right to seek fees from good principled people like John for benefits it wins for its members and illegal to withhold those benefits from those exerting their very important right not to pay their fees and join the union. Congratulations to his honour for upholding these important human rights. Finally, a former New South Wales State Minister and caring business class party treasurer bloke called Michael Yabsley wrote a piece urging former big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull to stop attacking the conspirator who stabbed him in the back. Malcolm, we can find fault with the more lash son leadership just as we could find fault with the Tunner Bull leadership. But more lash son is a good person and you know it. Good point, Michael. We all know it. Well, I'm not sure Malcolm does, but we do. Like the French Big Supremo, we don't think we know. Good morning.
Join the global slut walk movement to end slut shaming and victim blaming. Tune in to 3CR on Saturday, November 13th at 1 p.m. Turn it up loud and let speeches fill the streets. Tell the world, even in pandemic, we will not be silenced. Slut walk is a controversial name, not a controversial message. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, in order to finish up our uh, look at COP26 People Summit and uh, uh, some uh, little extracts from what were days and days of things that uh, happened, uh, I thought I'd have a yarn with uh, 3CR's Vivian Langford, who runs the Zero Emissions Program on Mondays at 5pm. G'day, Vivian. How are you? Oh, hi, Annie. It's actually the Climate Action Show. It's oh. been all this year. It's called the Climate Action Show because we just do activists and campaigners. Yeah, sorry, mate. It no, hasn't been. Right. It hasn't been updated on the three CR board. <laughs> there you go. We better give them a, a, a shove to make sure that they change it. Uh, yep. The. Um, Climate Action Show, at th- uh, it's still at 5pm right. on Monday, which is good. Now, you, uh, of course, this is your bread and butter, and uh, you've, yes. I, uh, I followed one stream, but uh, you were following quite a, another stream of uh, activist information coming out of Glasgow during this past week. Uh, yes. t- can you tell our lis- listeners what was going on? Yeah, well, I'm getting used to being up at, 2am to tune in to the other side of the world, but we've been on the road to Glasgow. I did five weeks of programming before the COP26, so I was getting quite elevated about the expectations, and of course they have been disappointed because, you know, and I don't think it should, however, be reported as a failure. You know, a lot of our media has just popped, you know, they've flown in and flown out, and they're saying it's a failure, but there's so much happening there, and what I found, I discovered, um, I went to a lot of the formal sessions and people are very polite there and the tone is very cautious and so on. But out in the street, I was watching this thing with live streaming, something called COP26 TV. Um, George Monbiot is associated with it. It's like an online, you know, streaming these people out in the in the streets with a microphone just like you do. <laughs> I'm interviewing anybody, but the people were so well informed and the people were so like the momentum you felt and the joy that that they have to keep out in the street, they have to keep going. And there were all these little street theatre things like, um, it seemed to be like a skit. There was one with about 80 people standing around and four guys in lab coats who were scientists and the MC was pretending to be Boris Johnson, you know, with all his false solutions. And they just, you know, blew, that, blew out of the water his of solutions, and one of them was an Australian scientist who was talking about carbon capture and storage, which we hear a lot about here, and it was just like a little street theatre thing down by the Clyde River, and then the streaming goes on and you see Extinction Rebellion people, there were doctors lying as if they were dead in front of um, J.B. Morgan Chase Bank, which is the one that is the biggest financier of the fossil fuel industry. It was so exhilarating to see that. And last Saturday, when it was the Global Day of Action, there were 100,000 people 
and not just marching, not saying, you know, what do we want, blah, 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 now, all that kind of tired sort of, you know, repetitive stuff that the media just makes mincemeat of. This is all fresh stuff, fresh people, fresh musicians. It's very exciting. So I just feel, and a lot of those people from around the world who've gone there to Cobham who don't really feel listened to, you know, people from the Amazon, people, Indigenous people from here too, I heard them speak, they were given platforms there and really proper platforms where a lot of people were gathered around listening. And I think that was more like, you know, breaking open this uh, kind of democracy we have where only privileged people, usually the corporation, the sort of privileged people, get access, get in, and their, their, their will is done. Whereas here it was in the street, you could see all the other people who have other information and and real life experience of you know environmental destruction, like in the Amazon or up here, you know, with the gas and coal mines here, um, they were being given a platform. I just loved that. I, I thought that was really, to me, that was like a sign of the future. You know, break the yeah, yeah. I, I think you're exactly democracy. right. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right because um, uh, when you look at the mainstream messages that are quite clearly uh, being held together by uh, corporate and financial interests, uh, they are desperately trying to contain the message and they use words like uh, sacrifice zones and material economic a, a, a material economy, green extractivism, and yeah. it's all tied up in the bow of inequality, you know, saying that uh, we basically need to make these sacrifices or we won't be able to have a clean future. But having all these people with their genuine messages coming in, uh, it makes it quite clear that uh, reducing inequality and human rights are actually absolutely central to solving the climate emergency. They're not side issues. No. Well, you started your program mentioning people who are actually murdered, and I'd like to mention to the listeners there was one woman at COP26. She was an Amazon delegate, and her name was Claudia Liche Silva dos Santos. And while she was there, her camp with about 80 people, 80 families, was being was burned down. The people were um, bashed up, taken. Some were taken away in trucks. Others fed into the forest. And she is also a person whose brother and sister-in-law were killed ten years ago. And they've been ten years in that camp trying to stop illegal logging. So there's real consequences. And all this thing. I mean, I'm doing a program on the forest agreement. And I, when that was released, I thought, oh great, you know, stop deforestation by 2030. Isn't that a great headline? But you can think countries like Brazil. They have no intention of doing that. They've they've just loosened up all the laws about land holding, making it you know illegal logging and ranching just easier. So you know it's a huge battle on. But I think a lot of it is to do with the media. When I saw that live streaming, I thought those stories. You know, you can edit out bits like you've edited out bits of those summits you went to, the alternative summit. If the media would give us some of those voices, give those people a platform, I think things would change. I, I can't see how else things will change because, you know, our government is, is impermeable. You know, our well, 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 what I've noticed is, and from listening to all these uh, different uh, 
things. And I listen to sessions from workers and I listen to sessions from a whole range of uh, groups of people. Yeah. Uh, uh, how um, all the things that are issues here are issues in every other country. So what's going on is that the corporate and financial interests with their governments are actually engineering the same problems in every other country. So the business about uh, representing the fact that they're actually consulting with uh, First Nations people, uh, bald-faced lie, not true. Mm. Uh, that is repeated right across the uh, the the world. Uh, the um, the fact that uh, public transport, uh, which is an answer to the issue of an addiction to individual transport units, which are a problem, uh, they're all across the world. Uh, they're casualising, uh, making the work insecure, selling it off. Um, Taking away funding, as in England, they the public transport system relies on ticket sales, not government support. Uh, now, this is these are all being repeated all across the world. Uh, these yeah. same issues, which and the you know the mining, the degradation of the asset uh, for the shareholder dollar. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah. think it's a kind of a gaslighting phenomenon you know it feels like gaslighting because these messages sound so good at first you know they sort of greenwash these ongoing business profits you know um one of the indigenous speakers um pastor ray minicon i heard him talking and uh, debriefing from cough cough he was still in glasgow and he said oh look the australian pavilion it's like a um, you know like a trade fair for fossil fuels <laughs> or could you call it the twiggy forest show and yet it's designed to, you know, make people feel Australia's got this go-get-it spirit. <laughs> yeah, I know. Celebrating the go-get-up-and-go um, kind of spirit. And, and, and I, I had hoped that Australia would be more humiliated at COP. It was over the, the submarine deal, but, but it, it wasn't humiliated enough and it wasn't pressured enough and people have gone tough-tough and disapproving. But I think, you know, they're just waiting for, for Australia to be you know, to go on being the huge exporter of hydrogen fuel or, you know, renewable energy without any regulation or, you know, a, a completely new deal for the local people. And uh, one of the Indigenous speakers said, we didn't feel heard there. Mm. We were on panels. We were given panels. We were able to speak, but we didn't feel heard. And one of them was a woman, she's a solicitor called Virginia Marshall, Dr. Virginia Marshall. She was really impressive and she was with this Indigenous delegation from here, and she said, look, we've got intellectual property rights over our way of dealing with land, and now the world as climate change is desperate for that. You know, how do you preserve the forest? How do you preserve the, the oceans? You know, you gave your thing about the whaling. You have to have a different relationship with it, but we can't package that in a little something that you can just take away. You have to approach us with more respect and really, <coughs> really well listen to us. Well, actually, there, there there has to be an ideo ideological paradigm shift, uh, quite clearly. Uh, but are we capable of it? I mean, they're having a press conference just now while we're speaking, and I thought it was rather funny. They're launching a film. Indigenous people are launching a film called "Learning to Be Human." <laughs> yeah, a well, series of documentaries, learning to be human. Isn't that the message? We, you know, you, you had just before that 
um, you know, Gina Hardheart. You know, he mentioned Gina Hardheart. Well, that is, we have to learn to be human, but are we, are we going to? I don't know. I thought in the street, when I saw those street things, I was really heartened because I thought, these people have all got heart. These people are, you know, genuinely capable of shifting and we're capable of shifting. But we, we don't control things and the people who are controlling are locking out a lot of voices. Well, no, it was interesting, one of the sections that we I played today, the Malaysian woman, uh, she was pointing out that the fact that they had a, a you know a semi-dictatorship type government uh, was actually a very a, a strong key to allowing the uh, bad behaviour of the lithium Australian lithium um, mining company. Uh, so quite clearly, having weak and uh, draconian governments is a preference for the corporate and financial interests at this level. The other thing that I found interesting is that uh, by looking at the um, following the money, it was, it's possible, and listening to what's happening to people on the ground, you can remove all the miasma of the greenwash. Mm. Or, uh, you don't have to get confused uh, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it is a duck. And the corporates and the financiers, unless they're pressured uh, and unless people are very focused, because this is a, a, a um, fight that uh, is too big to lose, isn't it, mm. Vivian? Mm. Well, following the money, I, I think I had hoped that at least if they said that, this, that they were going to phase out coal, well, coal phasing itself out anyway. They're not phasing out oil and gas. And those, there were 500 lobbyists there from those industries. 500, that's more than some country delegations, more than the Chinese delegation, for example. 500 lobbyists for oil and gas. And they are still getting subsidies globally of $5.9 trillion. Yeah, it's a disgrace, isn't it? Well, it's more than a disgrace. It's got to be spotlighted and they were talking about that. They were at least talking about that. There was something called the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, and I interviewed those people a few weeks back, but, you know, it's still a little tender shoot. It's still a tiny little gesture, I think, you know, in the great wash of what they decide, and they didn't decide to stop subsidising, you know, fossil fuels. And the other thing I wanted to talk to you about um, is biomass. You know, you talked about these deceptions. It's too big to lose, but the people fighting the definition of biomass have been doing this for 10 or 15 years and, and it's still going on it's a 51 billion dollar industry and, and i had can you explain a bio bio uh, mass T- yeah, tell us about I, what it is i thought it, yeah i just thought it was like the waste yeah. from the timber industry or something but it's not they're cutting down whole forests europe especially is a buyer you know europe europe is is looking green putting on the, on its ledger that it's got renewable energy because they're using wood pellets from um, oh, America, yeah. from South Carolina, from um, Canada forests. You know, they're cutting down new forests, you know, like new logs to export as pellets. They pelletise it and then they send it to Europe. And it's, that's a $51 billion industry. And I saw one banner on a um, sugarcane place, mill, a sugarcane mill in Australia, and it said, this is dead koala energy, you know, which puts it in a capsule, dead koala energy. It's not renewable energy just because the trees grow again. <laughs> you know, yeah, but also the um, 
burning off. Do they know what... Uh, what? Carbon emitting. Yes, yeah, right. um, that's just lunatic. But, you know, the person I've interviewed is Peg Putt, and she's an expert on that. That'll be at the end of November for listeners. If you want to tune in, Peg Putt, I'm going to look at the forestry agreement, you know, this thing of no no deforesting before 2030. Well, by 2030, well, <laughs> Peg Putt puts it really clearly. She, we have been fighting this. It's like a language problem. If you keep defining that as renewable energy... They keep exporting it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And doing a publicity campaign to 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 disperse the reality. Yeah, that's right. But let's call it dead koala energy because it's got to have some. There's got to be not only a shift in um, conscious or the shift of consciousness will come. I think from a shift in the way we talk about things and the people who talk about things. If it's different people, new perspectives become dominant, then our, our, our attitude and our action will, will shift. And I could see that in the street. I could see all of that in the street. And I can see that at 3CR with us, but we're still, you know, we're still not the people in power who are, who are just, they're, they're like snakes. or No, not, not like snakes, but you know, they change. They, they shrug off one skin and put on another one and it looks brand new, but... Well, you know, it's funny, uh, Morrison's in election mode and he had the temerity to talk about his great electric car plan, uh, but uh, which was really just more money to private industry to set oh, up uh, bowsers yeah. effectively yeah. N- without any intelligence in regard to actually formulating a plan mm-hmm. for ordinary people to have electric cars. I mean, good, good or bad, but it just shows that uh, he, you know, they've got, we've got a, we've, the people in parliament at the moment are, are obviously have got the brains of peanuts and, uh, you know, uh, people really need to think about where they're going to vote next time. But I think the people with peanut brains are the ones who let them get away with it. You know, how do we let our government get away with How do we vote for them? How do we let our media get away with what they do? It's not good enough. You, We just have to... It, the onus is really on us, a country like Australia. We're not a dictatorship. We do have freedom of the speech. We do have, you know, parliament. Stand <laughs> up. Activate it. No, we have to energise it and activate it and be much more savvy. Like those people, I, I could see that you know, this rally that had all these little sideshows where you could just go and inform yourself about all these different areas, people getting up and speaking. It was fabulous. And in Australia, we've got so many people doing that sort of work, but we're still very polite and very, you know, doing things within the guardrails and everything. It's too slow. It's, uh, we have to be much more onto it. I, I, all right. I, I, I loved attending the COP, really. A lot of it I did love, but a, a lot of it was theatre in the wrong sense. You know, it was that poignant young child from the Amazon speaking. You know very well the Amazon's being cut down. We have to finish it there. We're right up okay. to the wire. Thank you very okay. much. Very informative. And uh, Thanks, everybody needs to listen up to your program, The Climate Action yeah. Show, 5 p.m. Yeah. on Mondays. Yeah. See the you, mate. The are all there, climate action. Bye-bye. Thanks. And uh, we really do have to go. Uh, coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. Gee, um, Vivian's uh, a national treasure. Uh, we're going to go out with Sweet Life from Catherine uh, Tracos. I want to love her, but I don't want the trouble. want a cigarette, but don't want the cancer. I want to be a good girl by being naughty. Benefits of working hard, but only being lazy. 
Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.